Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Desert Rain Community Radio. Today, uh, David and I once again switch the roles, and he interviews me, and we get into uh, alcoholism, addiction, a road road out, uh, road to recovery, and uh, share some of my personal story in and around that, and uh, 12-step programs and how that sort of set the foundation for my spiritual life and my prayer life. But before we get into that, uh, thank you, Diego, at Recording Moving Studios for your editing and sound engineering on this episode. Thank you to uh, Jacob Nedia at monkdrums.com. You can check out his uh, different drums at uh, at monkdrums.com. If you're interested in hearing, or excuse me, reading, more of David Morrison's writings, go to theruined.com. If you are interested in hearing previous episodes of Desert Rain Community Radio, drcrpod.com will get you there. You can also check us out on Spotify and other places you listen to podcasts. And lastly, if you enjoy what you're hearing, Please uh, share it with a friend. Tell them about it um, and spread the word. So we appreciate you and let's get into it. Hello and welcome to our first April edition of Desert Rain Community Radio. How are you today, Mr. David? <laughs> a little confused, <laughs> but doing just, all right. I was doing the, I was trying to do the math to see when this would get posted, and I think uh, it's okay. I think it'll be the either the first or second week of April. We'll see. So maybe I was doing some time travel. <laughs> yeah, we're not yeah. we're not in April yet and as I we record Easter's. this. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Mister, where where did Easter's go? Um, for all you that tuned in last week, uh, that was that was the topic uh, last Tuesday. Was the Easter um, Easter vigil and rolling into Easter and the time after. And uh, today we're going to go with a little bit different route. Actually, um, David's going to take the the lead role as interviewer, and I'm going to be the interviewee. And um, as I record this, as we record this, I uh, I personally have uh, 12 years, 11 months, and six days of sobriety. Um, but when we post it, I'll have uh, God willing, I don't drink between now and then. <laughs> I will have uh, just over 13 years of, of sober time and uh, thought that would be an interesting thing to delve into, uh, sort of mix it with my my sobriety story, but also my my road to desert rain. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So how the turntables have turned. <laughs> see, if we, can, whippy, whippy. see if I can summon my inner Conan O'Brien here. Nice. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about, about yourself? Uh, drinking obviously became a a slight hindrance to your life. Yeah, a huge hindrance. <laughs> so why, why don't we? <laughs> I self justified it as a slight hindrance for a while. Uh, yeah, I started. So I was about fifteen years old. The first time I drank. Uh, well, I, you know, I was one of those kids, like my parents would like, my dad would give me sips of his beer and stuff right. growing up and, you know, nothing really problematic with that. But the first time I drank with, without adults around, mm, I was yeah. 15, it was a, it was a spring day 
and um, it was a sophomore in high school, I think. And we were hanging out with the cool. It was me and my best friend at the time hanging out with two two guys. Well, his brother, who, which was a senior and another senior guy. And they they asked us if we wanted to drink with them. And, um, I, I think at that point, my buddy had drank with them, but I had not. And so like this idea of wanting to be accepted by the cool senior kids – kind of kicked in and and so that that's really where it, where it started for me um and progressed through high school you know I, I kind of went from drinking once or maybe once a month once every other month but by the end of my senior year I was drinking every weekend mm. and if I could you know Friday and Saturday night so drinking twice a week pretty regularly so you were the new recruit yeah. The cool kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, it, and it did end up kind of being my group of people, you know, the party mm-hmm. kids or whatever. I kind of um, embedded with them. And and uh, I, I think one of the things that was significant with that as far as like finding my group was I moved around a lot. My dad builds, ho- mm-hmm. built, builds houses. So I moved around a lot in elementary school. Um, so I always felt like the new kid, sort of the outsider. And so... Um, I went to the same high school all four years. So kind of finding that group for some reason seemed important at the time. And we're not talking about having a beer or two. So, yeah, we're, we're, you know, um, maybe the first few times I drank. uh, Well, I mean, even that first time I drank, I didn't even get drunk. Oh, okay. You know, sort of this idea of wanting to fit in. I can remember I didn't really get drunk, but I acted drunk because I wanted to fit in. Like, or I acted what I thought a drunk person would act like. I don't, I don't even, you know what I mean? Who knows how well that even went over? But yeah, I mean, for the most part, it would be drinking as many beers as I could, or if we were drinking hard liquor, you know, drinking as many shots. Cause that was the other thing that I tried to, as far as this idea of like being part of the cool kids was like drinking excessively to kind of show off was, was kind of my MO. So when I was drinking on the weekends, um, in fact, I think if I, if I was in a position where it was only like, there was only a few beers around, I would actually forego drinking. Cause I knew I would, if I knew I wouldn't be able to get drunk, it didn't seem like worth even having a beer or two. Wow. Um, so it was – do you think that would be the sign of being an alcoholic? Um, n- not, not necessarily. I think, I think there's uh, more of a sign. I mean that's how it manifested in me for sure. But um, I think more of a sign is like this idea of control. Um, if you think you have control over it, but once you start drinking, cause some, so some pe- some alcoholics were daily drinkers. Uh, that wasn't really my MO. Um, even as I continued to drink, uh, some people are binge drinkers. So they'll like wait for the weekend or, you know, long holidays or something like that. Um, and then some people are even like, uh, I guess it would be more like, called like a spree drinker. Where maybe they go two or three months or longer without drinking mm. or using anything, and then they go for like a week straight or two weeks straight and, and go on a, a pretty vicious spree. Mm. So I, I don't think really, you know, because I know people that never got DUIs, never got arrested in any capacity. You know, I know people that have gotten arrested a bunch of times. So I think the 
consequences or the way it looks outwardly is much different from, there's many different forms, but there, there's this idea of control where once you start to drink, you're kind of, you don't have a, a say um, on when, you, when you're gonna stop. Cause it's that, that idea that one is too many and a thousand is not enough. Mm. Probably paints the picture pretty reasonably for a non-alcoholic. And I'm guessing there's probably, you know, addiction seems like a very mysterious thing. Mm-hmm. And so, what, you know, are there a myriad of different variables or reasons people get addicted? Um, so there's a lot of theories out there that I've read up on and looked into. One of them is like, uh, it's a gene. So it's mm-hmm. like you inherit a gene from your family or, you know, uh, the family line. Um there's uh, this idea that um, if you drink a lot, you'll sort of cross this imaginary line of when you become an alcoholic mm-hmm. um, or an addict to uh, drug use is, is you know, I, I met a guy at one point where I want to say he was in his 70s and he was like a retired military officer. In fact, he might have even been a pilot. Um, but I don't remember that part for sure, but he was definitely a retired military officer. So someone you would think would be really disciplined, you know, and, um, I think he lost his wife. He had started drinking and then he lost his wife and had like surgery or something around the same time and ended up getting addicted to, uh, pain pills. Mm. And it just sort of, you know, he was in his seventies and just spiraled out of control, you know? And, and so, um, it can come in many different ages. Uh, I think, I think trauma. I think that's mm. uh, childhood trauma is probably a pretty um, common thread. But but I also know people that had sort of an idealistic two parent family uh, and, and ended up alcoholics or addicts. Yeah. So I think it can there could be many different trip wires, so to speak. Um, and I think it's also important to point out that just if you're a heavy drinker, you drink a lot, that that doesn't even or even use drugs. That that's not necessarily um a sign of alcoholism or addiction. Um some people uh I think I think the pain pills is a good example. People will go in for surgeries. Um and if they're not alcoholic, but they might or addicts, they might get addicted to those opiates. Um, but if they're able to sort of break the cycle, go to go to a detox or rehab for, you know, 30 days or 60 days and sort of um, get put physically, get put back on their feet, um, won't go back into uh, the substance abuse. So that, you know, that's a tricky thing too, because you can't really outwardly tell if someone is a true addict or if they're just displaying addict behaviors because of uh, a season of their life. So is there is it true that there's a such thing as a chemical addiction and a psychological one, or, or you can have both? Yeah, there's so there's a lot of speculation about that. I think um, I think both of it. I think you can become physically addicted to a substance. Um, so that's where like detoxes are helpful, like to get mm-hmm. medically detoxed. Um, and then there's uh, sort of like you're saying the psychological addiction where you get whether it's the routine um a lot of people it's so this isn't really down the same 
path in the sense, but like cigarette smoking. It's usually a communal thing. You go out, you have your little yeah. ro- routine where you you tap your your pack or something, and you pull one out. Yeah, yeah. And I've heard people describe that process, um, whether it's with their drinking or their drug use, sort of the same sort of um, rituals or routines. Yeah, maybe might be a good word. Safe. Yeah, knowing that relief. You know, at least I can control this one thing. Yeah. So for me, I, I could remember like that cracking open open the first beer. And yeah. taking a big a big swig or a big drink and just sort of that um, – I mean even, at the, you know, with a big drink of beer, it's, you're not really getting drunk or the alcohol. Right. But just that that sort of that feeling of like that sigh of relief almost. Yeah, endorphins being yeah, released. Yeah, the, the oncoming. Coffee does the same thing, I, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, yeah. so I, I think that there's um, – and both things need to be, be looked at, right? Like when you're – if you're trying to help someone – uh, that's addicted in some way, shape, or form. Thinking about the psychological and the physical mm. um, is important. Um, and and sometimes you know, some if people aren't using for very long, the physical part might not necessarily be there, um, but it could be too. Yeah. So that's what one of the, especially with alcohol detox, you can't have a seizure and pass away. So it's wow. that's why it's super important to have a, a medical doctor. Um, oversee a detox um, or a trained facility yeah you know that, that's used to to bringing people off so and, and you know so would you describe yourself as someone that was running away from things to drink uh, an escape or were you running towards something it made you feel invincible or none of those um that's interesting because um Huh. So, so maybe a little bit of both. I can, so like going back to the high school examples, I can remember being a really anxious teenager, mm. feeling a lot of anxiety and, and just anxiousness about nothing. You know, my parents provided for us. We had, you know, we had, we didn't worry about meals. Yeah. Um, there was some, some stress in the house about money, but not, you know, not more probably for like, uh, once more so than needs um and then you know kind of finding that group of party kids um having that that community or that group of people that i looked at as friends kind of drew me more into the drinking ideal it, it relieved that anxiety when i was drunk mm, yeah um and then it just sort of, I think it just sort of became a way of life. Eventually, you know, obviously I grew, would graduate high school. Well, maybe that's not obvious, but graduated high school and ended up joining the Navy, um, which I don't think I stated earlier. But uh, one of the things I talk about the Navy is it's it's a great place for a heavy drinker to hang out. <laughs> I was going to say sailors don't drink. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, people joke about that stereotype, but it's real. Yeah. It's heavy. It's a great place for heavy drinkers to hang out and um an even better place for an alcoholic to hide because mm. while I was serving, I never really needed to question my drinking because I could just look around and, and see, yeah, see other people acting maybe not as outrageous as I was, but similar <laughs> enough that I didn't really need to be self-reflective about my actions. And so, so you were, so you describe yourself more as a social drinker. So you were in a public, you were a public drinker, I would, I would guess. I mean, I would drink anywhere, home, you know, at home, you know, maybe I'd, uh, if it was like a weeknight and couldn't find anyone to go out with, I'd 
put on a movie and yeah. make a pizza and drink. I would, I would, I had no problem going out though, um, going out to the bars and that sort of I, uh, lifestyle. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I didn't really, I know some people would focus whether it was isolating or, or only drinking when they would go yeah, out. Yeah. And, and for me, it was just, it's just what I did. It almost became a hot, like a hobby mentality. So mm. I would just drink wherever. And so what kind of person would you become generally? Oh, that's or interesting. So inebriated. yeah. So, um, the best, so the best way it was described to me is that once I got drunk, once I started drinking was like on my way to getting drunk, multiple people would talk about having to walk on eggshells around me. Mm. Cause for whatever reason I had, I would like, I would go to extremes. So I'd either be like really happy and fun and outgoing, um, or, you know, this little, the smallest thing could upset me and I would get really mean and vicious. Um, you know, got got into to bar fights at times. Wow. Um, well, I guess I should probably phase that better. Got my ass kicked at bars <laughs> <laughs> more so than it was actually much of a fight. You know, I'm a pretty pretty small dude, pretty uh, slender dude, um, so I'm not beating up many people. But you have the reach, though. Those lanky. Yeah, those yeah. Lanky you know, arms. and so that's why usually early on I could I could hold my own, but <laughs> once little, that jab went away, <laughs> little guys like me fight over a burger. <laughs> But you got that breach. <laughs> um, so I was I was very unpredictable. That's probably the, the easiest way mm. to sum it up. But then when I would get mad, it really was like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde situation where I would just I would just go off the deep end wow. with, with the things, you know, people that I cared about or, you know, as much yeah. as I could in my alcoholism. I would say really terrible things, uh, do really terrible things to people and accuse them of things that but they didn't do. Yeah, for sure. Had no no business accusing wow. them of and and just think it was totally well, and I was also a blackout drinker. Mm. So for people that aren't familiar with that, it's it's where you drink so much that um from what I understand the science to be, the sort of the medical explanation is your your mind shuts down to sort of protect yourself. Wow. Because of the booze that you've, um, the amount of, that you've drank, the amount of alcohol you've ingested. And so you can still walk around, talk. Like I would have conversations with people and not remember any of wow. it. I would wake up in places and and have no idea how I got there. Um, really, like really looking back now, really dangerous stuff. Yeah, really dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> but it seemed normal at the time because I just, I was, I started blacking out in high school like wow. it, it happened pretty early on wow. um so yeah so that that was one of the consequences that um there you know there's big chunks of my life while i was drinking i drank for nine years big chunks of my life that are just sort of uh either completely gone or the quote-unquote memory i have of it is someone explaining it to me the next day or a few days later wow but you're still able to maintain your Naval career? By the skin of my teeth, I did. I did six years in the Navy. Um, the uh, I, I, I used to – when you're drinking, you find ways to justify why you're not – why you're drinking isn't a problem if someone brings it up to you. So um, one of the things I would tell myself is, um, I, well, I never, I never lost a job. But it's like, well, six six of those nine years I was drinking were in the Navy, where it's it's you really got to go out of your way to to get kicked out of the Navy. 
Um, I like the Catholic Church. <laughs> it's not that hard. <laughs> the Catholic Church is next level. <laughs> it's really oh, hard to get Jesus. Um, or to make Mother Teresa angry at you. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, and then prior to that, because I, I got sober shortly after getting out of the Navy, but prior to that, I was in high school. So I had dumb, mm. you know, high school jobs working at a restaurant or a golf course or, you know, a call center, things of those nature. Yeah. Where it's like they need bodies anyways, and it's pretty menial tasks. So you don't have to always be mentally sharp. And you lost a lot of friends? Well. Vicious states? Girlfriends for sure. Yeah. Um, acquaintances for sure. The friends that I, at least the friends that stuck around, I probably did lose some people that were that were my friends, but it was it was one of those weird dynamics that mostly the people I hung surrounded myself were also heavy drinkers. Mm. Uh, I don't want to call any of them alcoholics because I don't I don't know if they are or aren't. Okay. Um, and because of uh, joining the Navy, so I left my hometown of Las Cruces, and then in the the Navy you get you know you get transferred around that. I probably didn't technically like have that like the friend is like, oh, I don't want to be friends with you anymore. They were just probably relieved when I got transferred yeah. or left the situation. They're like, oh, I don't got to deal with that guy anymore. Okay, wow. that's good, you know. And and so, um, so yeah, so I, I don't I'm, – I'm sure I, I lost some friends along the way. Um, but it's kind of hard to remember because there's a lot of people that I drink with that I don't really talk to anymore because I'm sober and – and right. I'm just a different person now. So, did, did anybody confront you during those years about about your excessive so, drinking? So, so there was one time I got there, there's two times that stick out of people confronting me specifically, and I can remember some more in general ways. But I got a DUI at one point. Mm. I was actually pretty young. I was 19 when I got my DUI, and I had just been home on leave, and I can't remember if it was my dad or my mom. After I got my DUI, I said something about noticing that I had was drinking a lot, mm. but didn't want to bring it up because they, they were worried it would like push me away. Um, and then another time, it was after my first deployment, uh, me and a bunch of friends went out or we met up at a restaurant. Some of us had fake IDs, so we were able to drink at the restaurant. And then we went... I don't even know where we were trying to go. We were in Virginia. We ended up in North Carolina somehow. Like we were really drunk. And the next day when I got to work, uh, my supervisor pulled me aside. And we had a really crazy guy on the submarine named Dan. Like he was just. He crazy was Dan. Crazy Dan. Dan, <laughs> Dan the man. Um, and he was, he was sort of known on the submarine for doing out outrageous stuff and, and, you know, sort of pushing limits and pushing boundaries. And, and he left that night while we were still at the restaurant. And I can remember my supervisor pulling me aside and, and said something to the effect of, um, did it ever cross your mind last night that it, you were probably in a bad situation if Dan thought it was a good idea to leave the situation? (laughs) (laughs) And it hadn't, you know what I mean? Really, truly hadn't. And, you know, in my mind, I'm sure I wrote it off like, ah, oh, Dan was just tired. Like we weren't, we weren't that bad or, you know, whatever. <laughs> but like now looking back with a sober, sober mind, it's like, well, yeah, Dan probably did read the situation. He probably read the situation the best in that moment. And so, um, but, you know, and I can remember other people bringing it up. 
if I got us maybe like kicked out of a bar, if I said something rude to a significant someone's significant other, um, and ju- but justifying it in the sense that like um, being like, well, you know how I act when I drink, so it's like if you don't. If you don't want to be a part of that, just don't hang out with me. Like, that's how I justified it to myself. I might not have said it to the person. I'm sure some people I did say it to. But um, at the end of the day, it was more of a justification to myself to to sort of green light my bad behavior. Yeah. Yeah. If an adult gets in a tiger cage, it's their fault. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And feeds the tiger alcohol. (laughs) So so sobriety, how does that work? How does... So for me, uh, you know, I, I know there's a lot of different ways and a lot of different outlets. I, I did it through a 12-step program. Um, actually, when I got that DUI that I mentioned earlier, I had to go, I was court-ordered to go to some 12-step meetings. And so I went, but I was, you know, I was, well, I got the DUI at 19. And then by the time all the court hearings and everything went, I was I was 20 and as a 20-year-old, not drinking just seemed like a totally outrageous thing for, mm. for me at the time. But fast forward, I got sober when I was 24. And, and um, so fast forward that four years later, I, I knew that there was this crazy group of people that didn't drink. And they met together to not drink. <laughs> why would they do that? Yeah, why would you? At, that was my exact. When I was like, what? At 20 years, I was like, why, what the heck are these people doing? Like. Don't they know like how great drinking is and all the great stories and blah blah blah? But uh, so I sh- I showed up I showed up uh, it was a Friday night I well so Thursday well I, I, yeah I guess I should start from there so Thursday night at this point I'm out of the Navy a few months I'm going to university go Sun Devils ASU mm-hmm. and it was a Thursday night and I'd finished a project and I closed my uh, laptop. And there were six empty uh, beer cans on my desk that I drank that night as I was working to finish up this project. Uh, but they might as well have been six waters. Mm. I didn't. I didn't feel buzzed. I didn't feel tipsy. Like the slightest uh, change of uh, my mindset was not there. Um, and in that moment, it was like, you know, people call it the moment of clarity or okay. an epiphany, whatever divine intervention. But um, for me, it was just like, well, probably 99% of the people I know in my life, if they drink a six pack, they would probably be drunk. You yeah, know? you and they, think. Yeah, yeah. there's probably like the 1% of like Navy guys that I hung out with that drank a lot that um, maybe wouldn't be, but it was few and far between. And uh, in that, you know, in that same sort of mindset, I'd I'd just broken up with a girl a couple months earlier, and one of the things she had said to me as we were, uh, you know, sort of going our separate ways was, um, I know you got a lot of drink, or I know you got a lot of dreams in your life. I just hope drinking doesn't get in the way. And that was the first. So so when I talked about people uh, confronting me earlier, you know, I pointed out that it was like if we if we had some consequence, we got kicked out of a bar and uh, or I said some I said, you know, hurt someone's feelings. It was they would come to me and be like, "Hey, this happened," and the, and and so it, I always saw it like if someone was confronting me about my drinking, um, it was because it was affecting them. But the way that this girl had put it was that, "Hey, your drinking might affect you at some point down the line." Wow. 
And for some reason that when she first said it, it didn't really hit home. I just kind of rolled my eyes because it was on a phone conversation. I was like, yeah, whatever. I'm mm. got straight A's in school, blah, blah, blah. And you were in your second year of college? My first semester. First semester. So I moved to this huge party school. Yeah, in the sun's <laughs> anvil of the land of Arizona. Yeah. So I'm in this big party environment. And that was part of it too. I, I, I looked around and kids 18, 19, 20 years old that were at this quote unquote party school even they didn't drink like I wow. drank, you know, I, I noticed. And it was funny because I, I can remember, I still very vividly, I would I would hang out with the college kids because I was I was living in the dorm. They would call me grandpa because I was <laughs> like by far the oldest guy. And I was only, you know, 24. But I would hang out with the college kids and I had a cutoff time of 11 o'clock. If we hadn't heard about a party or we were on our way to some college party, I would just like be like, all right, guys, I'm taking off. And I would walk, you know, half a mile down the road to where the all the bars were because yeah. I could get into the bars because I was 21 and none of them were. So I would just ditch them and be like, all right, I'm going to go drink at the bars. Wow. Um, you know, and so, but it was, it, looking back, that's like such a silly, like I had this cutoff of 11 and I don't even know, maybe because the last call was like one o'clock or two o'clock or something at the bars. Um, but going back to that that moment of clarity, yeah, yeah. Part, part of that too, um, was, uh, like I mentioned before, I'd been drinking for nine years and just about every aspect of my life had changed during those nine years. So I'd lived all over the United States, you know, because when I was growing up in Las Cruces, it's like, oh, growing up in a small town is my problem. Like once I get out of Las Cruces, my life will be better. So I lived all over the United States. Uh, I'd been you know, I had girlfriends, I'd been single, I'd had money, I'd been broke. Um, my friends had ebbed and flowed, like we talked about, just from transferring and everything. And the two consistents was obviously me, because it was my life, um, and drinking. Mm. You know, drinking had always been part of my life. Even, in the, even like on deployments where I didn't have access to alcohol, I can remember spending a lot of time... Uh, planning my next drink. So where was I going to go? Who was I going to drink with? So even on deployments where I was on a submarine, so we're literally underwater and I didn't have access to alcohol, I would be like obsessing about my next drink. You were thinking about that all day long? Well, maybe not all day long, but it, you know, it was at least, yeah, at least, you know, at least a handful of times a week, like, okay, we're pulling in on this date. Um, We would have like a duty calendar. So if we pulled in, you might have to stay on the submarine for overnight because there was always had to be people on. So it'd be like, okay, well, I don't get to get off the first night, but the second night I'll go out with Travis and Dan and we'll, we'll go to this place and, you know, we can start early cause we'll get off work early. And wow. um, so I wasn't thinking about it necessarily 24 seven, but it was definitely a huge motivator. Pretty obsessive. Yeah. Fairly yeah, yeah. obsessive. So that Thursday night I, I got online and looked up, um, cause I knew, like I said, I knew about the 12 step meetings from, so, so this is, you were studying, you, you realized you'd finished six beers in a two hours, three hours. Yeah. Probably and, let's say two hours. Yeah. And you realized it didn't, your liver took the hit. Oh yeah. I didn't even feel didn't anything. anything. <laughs> and, uh, and so you realized, did you think the words I'm an alcoholic or, what, what would you no, say? What no words would describe the epiphany or the awakening or the clarity. Well, it was just all those thoughts that I just ran through as far as the, okay. you know, the timeline. Um, and even then, 
Like when I looked up, a, so I, it was a Thursday night. I looked up a meeting for the next night, which was a Friday night. Mm-hmm. And even, even then, my plan wasn't to get sober and stay sober. Uh, part okay. of it was to get the girl back that I had okay. just broken up with a few months ago. And to the way I say it is to let my life chill out a little bit because it had mm-hmm. gotten pretty rocky and, and um, wild. And so I don't even think... It was probably, so I went to those meetings for about a month, a couple meetings a week. And it probably wasn't, I was probably a month in, a month and a half in, where it was like, oh, like this. um, Well, I I can actually, I remember pretty specifically, um, they have literature that's part of these meetings and I was reading a thing and one of the expert ex- excerpts in there is a, it talks about a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde mm-hmm. mentality. I see. And so the paragraph that that's in, it's just one paragraph really described me. And I remember reading wow. that and, and never really having had that experience before, maybe in like a Hunter S. Thompson sort of way, right. where it was like some crazy scenario that he's explaining in one of his writings is like, Oh man, look at, but this was like more of a, like a, like in my bones relating, like reading this passage and being like, holy shit. Like, and even, even at the time I, I uh, sort of scribbled in the margin that, you know, Mallory had said this to me. That was the girl that had most recently broke up with me. And um, so I, I remember at that moment really thinking like, okay, I might be in the right place. Like this group of people and the things they're talking about. And if it's true that they're not drinking, and I'm having trouble, like maybe I can go a few, like a week or two without drinking, but I know that eventually I'm going to drink and I don't know how much I'll drink. Um, but more importantly, even more importantly than that, I could see happiness in people's mm-hmm. eyes. Like I remember seeing that and, and um, I don't know if it was a conscious thought or, you know, I, I sort of constructed the conscious thought later on down the line. But I can I can remember feeling like, man, if I, if I could experience like one tenth of the happiness that this guy in front of me or this girl in front of me seems to have in their, just in their eyes. Um, maybe, you know, maybe I should try this not drinking thing, but yeah, it was probably a month or two in before I, I thought that, um, my, my drinking was a problem in, in the manner that it was, uh, just more than not drinking for a little while. And, and getting, you know, sort of getting my outwardly things in order. Like it, I think at the first few months, it, it something happened where it, it turned internal, where it's like it's deeper than just what the outwardly stuff looks like. So it's a progressive clarity? Yeah, for sure. Wow, okay. And is there, so is there a moment of fear of waking up, of becoming sober and seeing the world, uh, you know, in a less blurry kind of way. So I, because since, it, since my sort of um, thing came gradually, like I said, when I showed up, I never, my intention wasn't to stay sober long-term. Yeah. And so I, I think the thing that uh, more that I noticed in those early days was like when I was driving on the interstate, it seemed like every billboard was an alcohol advertisement, mm. <laughs> which obviously wasn't true, right? Like, yeah. but for whatever reasons, like those ones popped out to me or um, convenience stores. 
you know, sometimes we'll have those like sandwich board type things in the front with yeah. like the weekly alcohol deal. And, it, you know, it seemed like everyone was like, get three bottle of three bottles of Crown Royal for a dollar fifty. You know, like it always seemed like the most outrageously yeah. good deal, which, you know, <laughs> that's it, a good deal. <laughs> yeah, it's like, <laughs> oh, I need to take advantage of that. That's the top shelf liquor. Yeah. Right <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so those sorts of things, just noticing what my mind would pick up on, mm. you know, and, and noticing, looking for reasons to drink was, was probably, I don't, the fear of being sober never really came because I wasn't planning to stay sober oh, Okay. at the, early on, early on for yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, my, I've obviously shifted on that, um, so yeah, so I, I, as far there was a fear of like if I if I got in my head about never drinking again. So I would construct these. And I think it's normal for for people that are trying to get into recovery. But like, well, what about at my wedding day? Mm. Like, am I not going to drink on my wedding day? Or like, what about my next my next big vacation? Am I going to yeah. do St. Patrick's Day? Yeah, and, and all these all these things. And it's like it's like, well, you're not getting married today, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. Are you are you on vacation right this second? No, okay. So mm. when you can cross those bridges when you get there. So it's definitely a, a present the being present to the present moment is is important. Yeah, for sure. Mm. And it's tough because I, I think part of the drinking thing is to avoid, you know, at least for me it was at the end I was like I told you, if I wasn't drinking, I was planning. So I was right. projecting into the future my next time I'd yeah. get drunk. Or I was like recovering from drinking the night before and like, you know, with mm. the headache and hangover and everything else. So, um, yeah, it wasn't much. My life, I would say definitely the last two years, there wasn't much of trying to live in the moment and, and maybe even before that. Wow. And so was there a point? I mean, did you declare yourself? Uh, sober or, or, well, or, uh, or was it a quiet? No, it's funny. So <laughs> there's one friend in particular and, and we're actually, you know, I don't, I don't want to trash him because we're, we're still friendly today, but he, he probably of all my friends, we went to high school together. We drank the most similarly mm-hmm. and we were, um, very similar in our, our dark sense of humor and, and just, you know, we, we were just very much peas in the pod. And I can remember early on of not drinking, not wanting to tell him because I knew that if the roles were reversed, like if he was trying to tell me he wasn't drinking anymore while I was drinking, yeah. I would just talk shit to him and like make fun of him and belittle mm-hmm. him and stuff. And so so I got I stopped drinking in March and his birthday is in July. Mm. And I can remember texting him on his birthday cuz something in me had switched of like I'm going to try this not drinking thing for me. Like I I no longer was trying to get the girl back. Well I, I was, but it wasn't as uh it wasn't as high up on the list of motivators. Oh, I see. Yeah. And I was like I'm going to try this sobriety thing for me and I I think it was it was really what I had talked about earlier with seeing the happiness in other people and being like, man, I, I want to experience some of that. I want to see how I can try to get that in my life, you know, and, and some of these uh, just seeing people like sort of uh, peaceful in their own skin. They were comfortable in, yeah. in who they were. 
just as they were. Um, and I definitely was not that even before I started drinking as a teenager, I can remember feeling very uncomfortable of who I was and in my own skin. And so I reached out to this friend from high school and said, Hey man, I'm, I just want to let you know, or I wished him a happy birthday. And then I just I added, like, I just want to let you know, I'm not, not drinking anymore. And, um, he really lashed out at me, like in, in wow. making fun of me and stuff. But yeah, even you came out of the closet, <laughs> so to speak, you know? but even, yes, yeah. but even in a, a way that was even more, uh, there was there was more uh, venom to it than I was expecting. Wow. Okay. Um, but that was sort of from I think that telling him was sort of that that um, moment of like yeah I'm gonna try this for more than just letting my life chill out or getting a yeah. girl back like I'm gonna try it be for more for deeper reasons you know and 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 that that, that you know that passed and him and I like I said we're friendly today. But it was it was very interesting because I knew had the roles been reversed, I would have been the one Damn. being mean towards him about yeah. him not drinking, you know. Wow. So uh, so that was sort of my my admitting to myself that you were a sober person. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Did other people have you know when you came out, so to speak, to people as a sober person? The did only you other have other negative responses or. No, the only other time I can remember, uh, so I had gone home, I guess it was in May, got sober in March. So, you know, five or six weeks later, I came came back to Las Cruces and for a friend's graduation party. And me and my buddy showed up at the same time. And, and one of the girls we knew walked up to us and offered us both a beer. And... Mm-hmm. I did. I declined. I was like, "No, that's all right. I'm not. I'm not drinking tonight." And the way my the buddy that I showed up with and the girl that offered me a beer, like they knew me from high school. They both looked at me, like, "Like who replaced Dorius? <laughs> like what's what's going on here?" And I turned to my buddy. I was like, "You can drink, and I'll be your DD, and I'll explain stuff later." So he drank and had a good night. And when and when we left that party and on our way to another one, I explained to him what was going on. And then several months later, he came to visit me in Phoenix. Or he didn't even come to visit me. He was driving through to LA, but he stopped. He stopped. He stayed the night at my my place, sort of to break up the drive. And he, he was. He said something in fact like, "Oh, what do you want to do tonight?" And I was like, I, "I don't know. We can go grab a bite to eat. You know, we can go to this place, that place." And he's like, "You don't want to drink?" Like he had forgotten that I had told him I was like venturing into this thing of not drinking. And I was like, no, man, I don't, I don't, I haven't drank for several months now. I thought I told you. He's like, oh, I forgot. But you could just see the weight of the world sort of leave him. Like he had been stressed out about the type of drinking we were going to do that evening. And that was was like a a burden to him. Yes. And And that was the first time for me that I could really see how my drinking impacted those I cared for People trying to catch up with you. Yeah. And, wow. and this guy, and he, he would, most of the time we hung out, he would try to keep up. And, um, but obviously that was, it was, it was not something that was like in that he was really up for, you know? And, and, um, and it's cool cause him and I are still friends. So he's, he's probably been my longest friend. I knew him in middle school. So he saw me before drinking. He saw all my drinking mm-hmm. days and then now he's seen me afterwards. And, and, uh, 
But yeah, it was just very interesting to see him sort of have that sigh of relief. Wow. Yeah. I don't have to drink a bottle of tequila. <laughs> Try to keep up with, and then have to drive to LA, right? Yeah. Like wake up in the morning and, and go to LA for, I don't even, I think he was moving there or he had a job interview. Wake up in a neighbor's uh, pool chair in the backyard. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Having no idea where in, yeah. in Tempe, Arizona he was. Not good. So, so where is God and spirituality? How does all, how does all that fit in with recovery? Uh, for me, it's it's basically been the uh, the center the center point of it. Um, like I said, I you know I've been part of a twelve step group. Um, it's very much a, a spiritual based program um, with with an idea of God introduced early on. Uh, we talk about prayer and meditation. Uh, that's step eleven. I'm I'm sort of jumping around, but. Um, and for me, so when I showed up to to a, this program, the idea of prayer I was pretty um, familiar with. I know I've shared on this podcast, I grew up Catholic. So the idea of prayer was very um, – uh, what's the word? I knew about it. I was familiar yeah, with yeah. it. But this idea of meditation seemed totally out out to – out to, to left field. And, um, and so I kind of look at it as like the 12 steps or my guide have been my guide of spiritual practices and spiritual growth. Whereas I've, I've kind of gone, you know, I've done uh, new age type, I've gone to new age type churches, uh, you know, science of mind, um, obviously from the conversations we've had, um, over the last several years, it's, it's leaned more towards, Christianity and this idea of, of uh, you know, a poor guy from Nazareth uh, trying to teach those around him and heal those around him. Um, you know, I've, I've done Torah studies at, at synagogues to try mm. to learn more about the Hebrew scriptures, um, silent meditation retreats that um, they weren't, they were Buddhist in the sense that they were teaching Buddhist practices, but it wasn't like, um, they weren't necessarily pushing Buddhism upon you. It was just more like, hey, this is our meditation practices and you can come try it out with us. And so so I've dabbled in a lot of different shoots and variables off of this 12-step idea. Um, but yeah, I would, I would say for me, well, I, I tell this to people quite often. For me, sobriety and God um, are one A and one B in my life. And I don't know, like, I couldn't tell you if God was one A and sobriety was one B, um, or if sobriety was one A and God yeah. was one B. I kind of look at it like God sort of nudged me to this 12 step program. And through the practices of that, it then led those practices led me into a relationship with this mm -hmm. higher power. So it's sort of a, you know, a snake eating its own tail. You can't really tell yeah. what, what, what is what, but, um, but yeah, uh, spirituality has been a huge part. The, the main part, I guess. Because some journey. more fundamentalist kinds of Christians are very threatened by 12 steps, looking at it as a substitute or a, or a contrary spirituality to their Christianity. How would you, and how, how, would how you say to them? So yeah, I, I, I'm actually curious a little bit. Why why do you think that is that they feel so threatened? Uh, 
I think it's a root of addiction and alcohol. They, oh, like they're yeah, they want an absolute mm. answer. I want everyone else to be on that same. I see. Okay. Answer. Uh, that's my guess. Um, also, because twelve uh, step is so open. And it won't say specifically who the higher power is. And, oh, I see. Uh, and if it's, you know, and if Jesus is my higher power, then he's got to be yours. Too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and there are some people in the program that, that even within the program kind of have that idea. Really? Okay. So what was your original question for me? Oh, uh, so, so would you say 12 step spirituality? Can I use that word? Yeah. Uh, that phrase uh, was a compliment to your earlier Christian roots or a substitute for it? What would you say? Hmm. So, so it's evolved for me over the last, I think early on, it's just because, so I guess growing up, going to church, I never really looked at it as any kind of spirituality. Mm. I just looked at it as like, that's what my mom made us do. Yeah. And, so when I got to the program, it was sort of this roadmap, so to speak, of like, uh, well, first and foremost, it was a roadmap of like, th- if you do these things, there's a good chance you won't drink today mm-hmm. for the next 24 hours. And it's like, okay, well, I want to see what life is like without alcohol. So I'm going to do that. And um, so it kind of became, uh, I can't say it was a substitute per se, because I, like I said, I never thought of my Catholic roots is a spiritual endeavor. But then it's it's funny because it through the 12 steps and having that open-mindedness. Like if I would have walked in and they were talking specifically about Jesus and you got to say the you have to say these prayers and and it wasn't that open-ended, like you were saying, higher power aspect, yeah. uh, I probably wouldn't have been so open-minded to see what it was about. But then through that process, it led me to an open-mindedness around Catholicism at first because that's what I I grew up knowing, but then more so sort of this Christian spirituality, mm. this idea of, of um, you know, especially like uh, I think I was four years sober and I, I read the, the four Gospels and reading that and really having my eyes open to the fact that, you know, if, if, you, if you kind of think about like televangelist or just sort of the this caricature of American Christianity, uh, the things that are being that are written in the Gospels are far different mm. than. Um, so I, I guess a good example is you know you look at the mega churches, everyone's dressed up really nice, they, nice, they got their suit and tie on. Um, you know, they're, they're praying about how God's going to triumph over evil or something. But then you read the Gospels and, and Jesus was hanging out with the people that were like, for lack of a better word, just wearing rags. Yeah. Like they were the very poor people of the day. Excluded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From yeah. the mega churches. Exactly. And so it, it was just, it was weird. And I, I didn't really necessarily have any contact with the mega churches. You know, I was just kind of going off this caricature. Yeah. Um, but it was just, it was very confusing for me of like, okay, why, why is this, there's this one idea about what Christianity is. And then yeah. I read the gospels and it seems to be very different. Yeah. You know, and so actually the 12 steps led me back to um, Catholicism. 
um, but just more, even more so just Christianity in general. Whereas if that stuff would have been up on front, you know, I, I, one of the things we talk about in the program is to seek, seek a higher power. Yeah. Like always be out there trying to find new information. And and really it was through that curiosity that was planted in me um, is how I ended up going around and and coming back to this, this place of Christianity. Well, in my experience, you know, I didn't give much thought to 12 step spirituality Mm -hmm. and didn't really know, you know, anyone either Mm -hmm. involved with it until maybe about 2007. I went to a a conference with, uh, that was hosted by Richard Rohr and Mm -hmm. Thomas Keating. And it was on the, I believe the 11th step of the 12, mm-hmm. which is uh, uh, meditation and prayer, right? Yep, Contemplation. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So they were offering centering prayer as as a plausible 11th step. And so the things that Richard Rohr said about 12-step spirituality really intrigued me uh, all those years ago, uh, particularly the contrast of church and yeah. and the, the experience of a, a recovery group. Uh, for one... The church often gives the the message, uh, misguided message, that you can come to the uh, communion table. Uh, your worthiness is what uh, confirms your membership and your place mm, at this table. Right. Uh, which again is the opposite message of what Jesus gives yeah, in, in the New sure. Testament. Uh, but it, but that is the message that the church gives. Uh, um, so it's your worthiness that that makes you a member. <laughs> And then 12 step is the opposite. Yeah. It's your unworthiness that actually qualifies you as a member. Yeah. So that really hooked me and fascinated me about it. Uh, and so would you say anything about that? Yeah. Well, I actually have a really good, there was a, a, a guy from uh, New York, stereotypical, big, just, he was a big dude. Mm. Oh, you know, is a very funny outlook on life, you know, kind of pessimistic New Yorker type outlook and, and he would get real serious sometimes he's like man and it, it, this isn't original to him it just when he was presenting it it, it always hit home for me he's like man when i was in third grade i never i never told a teacher i wanted to grow up and and be in a 12-step program people were talking about being president and being a firefighter no one no one in my class any of my classes wanted to be in a 12-step program can't wait to achieve that <laughs> and then the other other times he would share about um Sort of going back to your unworthiness, he said. I he said, "AA is so beautiful because the more you've messed up, the more you fucked up your life, the louder people clap um, <laughs> for your like the fact that you're not drinking. To you know, you can go in there and be like, lost my job today, and my my wife isn't letting me talk to the kids anymore, and uh, I my car got repoed, so I had to walk over here, and the whole meeting was like, oh, yeah, oh, terrific. Just, <laughs> you didn't drink today, so come back again tomorrow, you know? And uh, and really, truly, um, you know, the doors are open to anybody, but there is this idea of of sort of your, your mistakes and your fall, not fall from grace, but just your uh, your mess ups as, yeah. as maybe uh, society would define them right. is, is kind of what leads you through the doors. You know, it'll be, uh, in the program, we talk about it being the last house on the block, wow. uh, because you know, your family doesn't want anything to do with you. 
Yeah. You're, you're lucky to be employed, you know, maybe you've been arrested or something and had some legal troubles. And, and even through all that, it's like, yeah, come on in. We, we have yeah. a, we have an open seat here and, and, uh, there's a, a cup of watered down bad coffee if you want that. And, um, but and to me, know, that's like, the church. <laughs> that's the expression of what the church should be. That's the, and uh, Richard War articulates that. Yeah, exactly. Really that's well. That's why I'm one of his disciples, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, so that message resonates. And, and, you know, and I come from the religious uh, achievement background. Mm. And so that, and so that's why it's such a refreshing viewpoint, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, and I always thought of, well, another reason why I didn't really give much thought to it is because, well, I don't drink, so, mm-hmm. you know, I don't, I don't need that. Yeah. That, that was kind of my attitude. Um, but Thomas Keating's writings uh, and, and in that conference made it very clear we're, we're, in, we're all in the addictive process regardless mm-hmm. of what you're – it doesn't have to be chemical. Right. Um, and so that was a fascinating new idea for me too that, that you know, and, and Richard Rohr talks a lot about it too, that, yeah. that we're basically all addicted to our own thinking. Mm-hmm. And so that really nailed me and I realized, wow. So that's, that's when I began to, to read up and, and talk to people – about 12 steps. And then, and then I met you yeah. a couple of years later and, well, and a the, living, breathing <laughs> specimen of sobriety. Someone that's walked through 12 <laughs> steps. Well, and the funny thing too, about that, uh, everyone being in the addictive process is, is some addictions are like celebrated. So if you're like a workaholic and you right. put in yeah, like a hundred years, you know, a yeah. hundred hours a week, you know, you, you always, uh, you know, if, if it's, some write-up about a successful lawyer yeah. or entrepreneur that, you know, they always focus on how many hours they, yeah, they put yeah. in or, you know, more recently with the advent of um, smartphones, you know, people, yeah. you just walk around and people are just, their nose is in their cell phone. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I can be guilty of that as well. Um, seeking power. Yeah. You know, I know all- you and I talked about that recently of sort of this idea of politicians, uh, will just not do whatever it takes, but seemingly do do some sketchy stuff to to hold on to that yeah. elected power and the the whatever form of power maybe they've acquired yeah. in their political office. Religious so, power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same thing, yeah. And so yeah, so it can manifest in a bunch of different ways. Um I guess unfortunately for me it was alcohol. Mm-hmm. But fortunately for me, it with as far as with the life I have today because if I wasn't an alcoholic, I would have never been taken to this different way of this different process of life yeah. that we refer to as the 12 steps. And, um, you know, I wouldn't have the life that I have today, which I'm very grateful for and very uh, have a lot of content around. It's almost like that uh, Easter vigil hymn from the either Byzantine or Eastern Orthodox. I don't remember, but it says, uh, oh, blessed failure of adam mm. because if it weren't for this blessed failure right we wouldn't have uh seen such a great savior in jesus christ yeah there would so be no reason for christ to come yeah so your original sin is that drinking which mm. led to such a great redemption and sobriety and a wakeful you know wakefulness in life yeah yeah and it's funny because sort of the main um caveat if you will or sort of the main vein of of the 12 steps is like helping others you know and and sort of going out of your way to be 
you know, in that context, specifically helpful to another alcoholic that's trying to get sober. But the longer you stay sober, you realize that it's it just being of service to whoever's in front of yeah. you that might need it. And, and um, I was talking to someone this morning with the Had I not had that background of trying to be of service to others, the last year of what we wa- we've walked through around the pandemic. Right. Um, and being mindful of others and trying to be mindful, like how do, how does my actions, excuse me, impact those around me? Um, whether it's literally the people I come in contact with day to day, or like even just going to the grocery store and, and putting on a mask versus not putting on a mask or, you know, ideas that have been, have become politicized, but it just, you know, trying to be in that frame of mind of like, okay, it might be inconvenient to me, but yeah. How can I how can I better serve those around me? Yeah. And and I'm really grateful for that paradigm that I've had that paradigm from recovery. Otherwise, I think the last year would have been a lot more stressful and overwhelming um, for me on on many wow. different levels. Um, so just it's kind of funny how this all weaves through the fabric of of life, fabric of my life and and uh, and maybe those I, I encounter throughout my day. Um, <laughs> we didn't even get to the point where we, we, we've got an hour. <laughs> so we might have to make this a two-parter or, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll start, we'll record next week yeah, from where, where we met. That's kind of, you know, that's oh, yeah, kind of, that's right. We were going to do that. That's kind of what you, you brought up right there as far as having yeah. encountered it through Richard Rohr and Thomas Merton, who, um, if anyone's curious about, uh, Christianity and 12 steps kind of coming together and being articulated. Um, Breathing Underwater by Richard Rohr is, is a good um, outlet. He's He uh, is able to bring scripture, which you're not going to really find that uh, in a 12-step program per se. Um, I guess there is one called, is it Celebrate Recovery? Yeah, for okay. more evangelical-minded people. Yeah, so, um, but in this particular book, Richard Rohr brings scripture and sort of his personal um, interactions with people in recovery and, and is able to articulate and lay out the 12 steps in a, in a pretty cool way that you can, I, th- I feel like you can digest it even if you're not an alcoholic or yeah, addict. Yeah. You can kind of get the get the points and the the main why it's laid out in the way that it is um cool yeah thank you we'll we'll do it we'll do another one next week where we turn the tables and uh flip the what did you say turn the turntables on each other turn i believe that's a a michael scott ism i believe nice (laughs) uh so thank you everyone for listening uh the ruin.com thank you all uh drcrpod.com the ruined on the facebook right yeah is it called the ruined yeah the ruined community um yeah you can you can check out some of uh david's musings and poems and stuff at the ruined uh and if you like what you hear uh feel free and uh we would love it if you told a friend to, to come check us out so uh thank you once again and thank you david thank you